This week on The Zone of Truth, Griff and I talk more about the happenings here at Hideous Laughter Productions, do a My Favorite Monsters segment on dimension-defying creatures, the Hounds of Tindalos, and of course, answer your, your listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the zone of truth. back in black yes and recording a lot recording a lot it's it's a it's a heavy recording sesh we're doing this weekend and and every other weekend for the next couple of weeks yeah they've been heavy and i think it's just going to continue for the foreseeing future i think the patrons are gonna really enjoy the mosquito witch that we recorded all in one day (laughs) yes and we we gotta talk about that because that was so much fun we're gonna get there but first i need to know what you're drinking tonight man well right now because it's not night it's afternoon i'm drinking a monster ultra fiesta to get the energy up for a Mm -hmm. drunken disorderly this evening but i have two sidearms white claw mango white claw blackberry how you doing boys all right we're doing real well they're doing great yeah wow yeah they're they're really excited to be here as for me i am drinking one of these sparkling ices with caffeine kind of like yourself i need a little pick-me-up this morning Uh, This is a strawberry citrus variant, and I think I actually have the other half of that White Claw pack number three here. I've got the White Claw strawberry and the White Claw pineapple. Hey, what's going on? Don't leave us out. Hey, 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 we're the the secret good flavors. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for being here tonight, gentlemen. Um, Looking forward to- I mean, the gang's really all here. That's right. I guess, I mean- We'll try and finish you all on air, but no guarantees. No guarantees. Yeah. Hey, uh, I always finish. That. What well, you said it, not me. Get buddy. out of here, pineapple! You're really aggra- Pi- you're being real Pi- aggressive, pineapple. Yeah, you're getting a little too aggressive. You look kind of cute over there, Steve. Uh, oh, well, thank you, pineapple. Gee, I'm gonna blush. He's put a muzzle on this guy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Housekeeping time. So there is lots and lots of stuff going on here between recording for the regular show, linked legacy stuff, zones of truths, um, all sorts of new stuff for the bestow curse upcoming podcast. I wanted to do just a little recap of what you guys are going to be seeing soon. So mosquito Witch, we recorded, I think it came out to three, a little longer than episode length segments. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty true to the standard I guess society scenario length. We maybe mm-hmm. went a little bit over for uh, some great for some RP. RP. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but about I think I think it'll end up like four and a half, five ish hours. Yeah. So for the folks who maybe uh, don't remember or didn't catch it last time, essentially what we did is we played a little exhibition match. Uh, the HLP uh, crew members who are part of Bestow Curse got together, and Griffin ran us through the Mosquito Witch. That is. Um, a very, very popular uh, Pathfinder Society scenario. We played through it basically just to make sure that we understood how our characters work. Some of the mechanics that we used work the way that we think they do. Um, our voices are good to go, and we were comfortable being in character before we kick off the actual show. And we're like, 
why the fuck won't we just record this and send it out to the Patreons for a little, uh, yeah, little thanks for thank support you. Because, you. you know, you guys got us to $1,000 a month. And uh, and then had to wait two months before we would yeah. launch a new show, which uh, you got us there faster than we expected. Sorry, but you'll get the Mosquito Witch as a uh, as a thanks. Yes, it's non-canon, so anything that happens in there is doesn't actually exist in I the. Think, I think we decided the items would be canon. Yes, yeah, I'm going to let you guys carry over the the cool items. I think there's one particularly cool dagger in there that uh, will be fun mm. to carry over. Yeah, absolutely. So. Let's talk about that for just a second. I think I, as well as all of the rest of the players, went in completely blind to the Mosquito Witch. I had no idea what the society scenario was about, what the hook was or anything. Is that something you want to share with the uh, with the folks at home, Griffin? Yeah, I think the Mosquito Witch, if you want to get somebody interested in 2E, it's one of the best level one society scenarios that's out there for 2E. I absolutely love it. But it's kind of... It's like cryptid hunting. It, it feels like yeah, you're, you're hunting yeah. down this cryptid in the river kingdoms known as the mosquito witch. And I equate the mosquito witch to the uh, the Mothman. It's really kind of the same creature. The mosquito witch has the like red eyes you see out in the woods, and it it's known for being a portent of. Uh, catastrophe and you get to see that kind of play out in the in the scenario it's very rp heavy i would say the the, much more than i expected there's a lot of good skill challenges there's only two combats in it and they really backload them so i think that's a good thing i think to explore all of what Tui has to offer. It does a really good job of kind of balancing that over the course of a four hour thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these society scenarios are like, go to this uh, ruin and figure this shit out. Four combats done. Four combats. They just speed spoonful, use some exposition and get your right. That's, that's Th- your session. This one had some really good like investigation and uh, problem solving and a lot of skill checks to put the pieces together because you get pieces that are a little bit vague. So I I think it's I think it's one of the best uh, level one scenarios that Pathfinder that Paizo has put out. Yeah, a lot of hype around it. Uh, we played through it. I would suggest anybody that's looking to play a little two E or run a little two E if you're just if you just only have time for a level one module, that would be a really good one to do. It was a lot of fun, and it even comes with from a from a behind the screens perspective it, it comes with instructions to run it as a horror scenario or like kind of a lighthearted goofy scenario and you can you can do one the other or play it kind of somewhere in between which i think is where we kind of landed with it and it's it's just really versatile it's really fun i mean you could play this one playing it with the lighthearted rules you could play this one with kids it's really? not. Yeah, it's it's really not. Um, I'm gonna have to re-record two, right, two right. different versions. It, it's it's really not gruesome if you play it that way. Yeah, uh, lots of fun. Sounds like there's a couple different ways you could run it, even for different groups or 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 what have you. We're gonna be dropping that on the Patreon feed, hopefully soon. Really, basically just as soon as the editing's done, we're gonna throw it out there. But we'll announce it long beforehand. 
Um, once long beforehand, you'll probably get a ping in your Patreon <laughs> in your in your email. You'll get a ping for the Patreon. Hey, mosquito witch is out. <laughs> yeah, uh, long before you would have downloaded it. Um, but what happens after that, right? So that's going to happen on our Patreon feed. So that's where you get your linked legacy stuff if you're subscribing five bucks and up. After that, you're going to see some stuff populate on a brand new feed, the Bestow Curse feed. So what's actually going to be dropping on there? Well, on the 21st of May, so just a few weeks from this this release here, you're going to get the trailer for Bestow Curse. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Just a, a few minutes of, of cool hype. Uh, get you excited for the adventure, get you in the mood. Okay, cool. That's all well and good, but get me to the content, Steve. Well, I'm getting you there. So then on the 23rd, I actually had sat down last night with Griffin and the two of us recorded a little bit of an intro for um, who Griffin is, where he comes from, what he's bringing specifically to this adventure. It's a get to know Griffin uh, style episode, about 20 minutes long. Then you're going to have similar episodes to that for all of the rest of us. So on the 26th, you're going to have Chris on the 28th. It's going to be me on the 30th is Haley. Finally, Emily is on the second. And then two days later on June 4th, we're dropping the first three episodes. Yeah, and I think even those of you that know us are really going to want to listen to specifically the player slash character intros because I kind of took what the things that we've talked about on Zone of Truth about all of the character reveals and tried to think of stuff a little bit more outside the box of that because you guys have already heard all of that before. So mm -hmm. I tried to ask some questions that are uh, kind of unique to each character now that I've gotten to sit down and everybody's gotten to sit down and play with these characters for a little bit. So I highly recommend listening to those because you'll get some information that you didn't get on the Zone of Truth. That's right, including fun facts about the players. Yeah, fun you facts. might not have known. Icebreakers. Absolutely. So... That probably summarizes it for the housekeeping right now. Super excited for all that stuff to drop, and we'll keep you posted when it's going to happen. Let's play a little music and get into the episode. All right. What are we listening to? We're listening to another track from Derek and Brandon Fichter. F-I-E-C-H-T-E-R. Fichter, maybe? I didn't I know last know. time. I won't know this time. I'm going to have to like right. reach out to these guys and say, hey, <laughs> hey listen, we... Uh, you know, we play your stuff on our show all the time. Can you tell us how to how say you your last name? Yep. <laughs> um, all right. This one's called The Minstrel's Lullaby. As we do with all of these episodes. Griffin, what you been getting into lately? What's been keeping you sane? Ooh, well, I've been a, I've been a very busy boy uh, lately. <laughs> so I haven't been doing too much extracurricular stuff. However, Haley and I started watching uh, Titans, which was recommended to me by Tristan, a friend of the show. It's um, it's the kind of grittier Teen Titans remake. It's pretty good. I, I prefer Doom Patrol, but I like goofy things, so yep. that's why I like Doom Patrol. Uh, beyond that, I actually watched the new Mortal Kombat movie recently. Really? You did? Yeah, I did, and I... I mean, it, it was by no means good cinema, but, but it was, it kind of brought me back to the older Mortal Kombat movies in a, in a good way because the effects were so much better and that kind of thing. Uh, really didn't like how they did Reptile in it, uh, but, and, and kind of didn't 
I don't know the way the way they did some of the characters maybe fits into the lore. I'm not a huge Mortal Kombat lore junkie, but they were kind of building up to a tournament and it wasn't a tournament. And oh, so that's a little bit of it, it's one of those things where like, Oh, we're leading into a sequel. Like they tease like mm-hmm. one of the characters. That's like, where the fuck was he all movie? They tease that character at the end of this. And I was kind of left with, uh, that sucks. But, um, but I mean the, the combat was gory. You had a lot of, uh, how the, how the brutalities go. They were the fatalities. They were good. You had your, uh, you know, uh, the Kung Lao uh, spinning hat fatality. Yes. That was in there. Um, but it was so fucking cheesy because, like, Kung Lao does that, and then he's like, Kung Lao wins. Oh, no. <laughs> You're like, what the fuck? Oh, or, no. like, like the, the characters themselves would say, fatal-. like, he literally, after that one, I think he said, Kung Lao wins, flawless victory. Because, like, the other person didn't hit him. It was, <laughs> I mean, that part was whack. <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly a little upset that you told me that because if I got a little fucked up and watched that movie and saw that happen or experienced it naturally, Dude, I would have lost my mind. I, I watched it after I got my. Second uh, COVID vaccine, so I was fevered out. Oh no! Watching this and just could not believe what I was seeing. <laughs> I could not believe it. But I mean, it was. It's it's definitely a good bad movie mm-hmm. in in the way that most of the old Mortal Kombat movies were. Uh, and I, I recommend it if you if you just want something that you're not going to take very seriously. That sounds really really good. As for me, I've got something that I've been taking very, very seriously myself because it is heavy. I've been watching a show on Netflix right now called Broadchurch. Okay. I am through the first season and a decent chunk of the way into the second. There's only three. It stars David Tennant. He is a disgraced police detective in uh, in the UK who botched a, a murder investigation and then is sent to the sleepy town of Broadchurch. And on his like first or second day, a child is found dead. And it is a very small town and everybody starts suspecting each other. It is phenomenal. I, I w- I'm blown away how good this show is. It there's there's not a it's not like a like an Americanized p- police show or detective show. There's no there's no gun combat. There's no um, chase scenes. There's really no action. It's just paranoia in this small town. People suspecting each other. Um, all of these this this dirty laundry and these old dirty secrets about everybody's neighbors coming to light. People suspecting things. You don't know what's true and what's not. It is so tightly written and it is heavy. Like it is really, really difficult. Have you seen Hot Fuzz? Uh, very similar, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. I was just thinking, like that's the comedy parallel to this. It pretty much is, yeah. So it doesn't have the like occult was doing it the whole yeah, time yeah, that yeah. Hot Fuzz does, but um, it's it's just phenomenally done, phenomenally shot. Uh, David Tennant, I'm pretty sure is and maybe always will be my favorite actor. He plays a character that is just absolutely um spiritually emotionally broken he's just a a mess up like a a total screw up and he's trying to solve this case for peace of mind for the family and this town overall the you do find out who done it at the end of the first season and 
I'm not gonna lie. Like I was by myself in my apartment, and not just that, but like that final oh, episode. Do you think you were by yourself. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> you um, don't have to preface with that. We I don't it. know why I do that anymore. Yeah, I'm a lonely man. Everybody knows this. Um, so, I. The final episode of season one is so incredibly emotional. I was like crying my eyes out by myself. It was phenomenal. It was so good. But I will say it is very heavy. It's really dark. So uh, if if that's not really for you, I understand. Watch Hot Fuzz. But watch Hot Fuzz instead. I also highly recommend Hot Fuzz. Um, but if you're looking for a phenomenally acted, really, really tight script show, I would really, really highly encourage Broadchurch. Besides that, I've been listening to a podcast called Seeing Saw. It is a group of people... I didn't know you did a spinoff. Oh, I I, I know. They, I've got my own fan cast now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Seeing Saw. Yep. No, this is actually a group of people... Um, it's an it's the it's the spiral from the book of saw official podcast. It's a group oh, of yeah. like journalists and and uh, film critics who are rewatching all of the saw movies in order leading up to the theatrical release of Spiral uh, this May. And so they're taking the movies one by one and talking about cool behind the scenes stuff and um, voting on favorite traps and stuff. And I am really really heavily invested in the saw franchise and they do a really really good job of breaking it down it's really interesting and in particular on the third episode they were reviewing saw three and they have an interview with um let me get his name correct here with lee winnell who wrote the first and third movie co-wrote the second movie and actually starred in saw one so this is not a spoiler because this movie's 20 fucking years old but there's the two men that are chained up in the bathroom one of them is carrie ewells um the princess bride dude and the other one is um the actual script writer he's oh, starred in the movie as well yeah is he the, he's the dead one or no, 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 no. That's uh, he's like the younger guy, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, photographer. Yeah, yeah, I got you. And I really like him in the movie, but um, this the interview that they do with him is phenomenal, and not just for fans of Saw, but I think just fans of cinema in general, because he takes um, the listener through this journey that him and director James Wan had of um, of putting together this low budget. I mean, the original Saw movie was. The budget was $1 million. They self-funded it. They put it together. They watched it explode. And then the next day, they were called up to write tons of sequels. Yeah. So he takes you through what that, not only what that like did to him, but also how that felt and some things he was expecting and some things he wasn't. He makes a phenomenal analogy about, you know, you create this first this first film that you're not expecting anybody to ever see. It's like telling a joke and then you get to the punchline and the person you're telling the joke to says, and then what happened? He's like, well, I wasn't planning on writing a second one because this was my movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and I think that I mean, just watching the first Saw movie, I feel like that movie was very well contained as yes. a as a non like as a as a singular horror movie, mm -hmm. it certainly does have that like oh the killer gets away and can do stuff. Right, ending but that's that a, a, that's in a lot of do. horror movies, right? That it's just a scary ending. It's not like it doesn't really open itself up to a sequel. Like it I feel like they had to do a lot more legwork for Jigsaw in two. Yes. to establish 
like they they didn't really establish him as like a serial killer in one where he's like doing intricate traps and shit. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like this situation, this circumstance, and like this guy's this ominous presence in one. Yes, and and that's some of the stuff that they talk about as well. How they achieve that, they they get that tone, and then how that changes, and talk about Tobin Bell's performance of that, and how he feels with the character and stuff. So, I the episodes are short. I would really suggest it if you're a fan of the franchise, even if just you're kind of a passive fan of the franchise, because I really like seeing behind the scenes stuff and understanding how movies come together. And I don't know how a lot about how horror films work, and. I learned a little bit there. Well, fun. you definitely learn about the budget of them because I think pretty across the board, most of the horror movies we like were relatively low budget comparatively. Yeah, I think by the time they get to... So I've only listened to the first three episodes so far. By the time they get to Saw 3, Saw 3, I mean, the series is becoming one of the most successful horror franchises of all time. Mm-hmm. And the budget was still only $10 million. Right. Well, like, and, and you don't need it for a Saw movie, really. Yeah. It's, it's not like you're paying for expensive uh, on-location filming, really. It's, no, it's all on they, a set. They, it's, it's funny you bring that up, because in the first movie, they shot virtually the entire movie inside a warehouse, which is why everything is fucking dark. Not yeah. because that was the tone they were looking for, but because they just built sets in a warehouse, yeah. and there's no light. <laughs> um, and I think at one point, it's in, it might be in the second movie, someone is walking down a hallway past a bunch of rooms, and that's just... Uh, the actors walking past uh, their dressing rooms. Like, <laughs> That's so good. They're like, "Well, we need a hallway shot. What hallway do we have? Oh, backstage, like the backstage scene. Works. All right, fuck <laughs> it, we'll do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, lots of really cool stuff there. I would highly suggest it. It's a lot of fun. Well, talking about hot fuzz, I actually i I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. I start again in this mm-hmm. in this fever-induced uh, two-day-long binge watch of uh, whatever was on TV. I found a show called Truth Seekers, which which has uh, uh, Nick Frost in it. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think it it does have uh, Simon Pegg in it, but he's not like it's not like them as the classic duo, yeah. which they do so well. It's like uh, Simon Pegg's in it, but he's not. A main character really and they're like (laughs) they're it technicians they're they're realistically they're like cable guys right they're they're but for wi-fi and they carry around all this paranormal gear because nick frost character is obsessed with uh with figuring out the paranormal and stuff and they end up like solving a bunch of paranormal like they become they become like ghost hunters this sounds great is it a comedy it's a comedy yeah yeah, it's a comedy but they're like ghost hunters and they're solving like network issues (laughs) 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 because one of the network issues is like there's a ghost in the machine and they like they solve it um but it's it's really funny um and I enjoyed it. I mean, it's not as good as some of their other duo stuff, but it's it's kind of a it's a pretty lighthearted. I, I really like kind of the paranormal, sh- like like what we do in the shadows, like mm-hmm. the paranormal show that's wrapped up in a comedy. Where uh, uh, where can you find that? Do I you think know? it's on Prime. Oh, okay, yeah. sure. I got that. I can do that. That's that's really good. I like the sound of that. How about we jump into the meat of this episode, Griff? How does that sound? Yeah, let's go. All right. So my favorite monster segment today, we are talking about the Hounds of Tindalos. The Hounds Tindalos? The Hounds of Tindalai? Maybe? I don't think the- I don't don't think we ever resolved it. 
No, but I th I'd hope we can today. I, I pulled a lot of really cool information about these creatures. Um, they're really interesting. They are based in Lovecraftian lore. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about how they fit within the Pathfinder world in general. And then Griff, of course, is going to take us through the stat block of these creatures, kind of how he used them and, you know, how they fit into the mechanical combat that we saw. All right. So what is a Hound of Tindalos? Well, first of all, I wondered what Tindalos was, like many people. Yeah. And I don't know that I got a really good answer. No, you probably didn't. No, like a lot of this kind of Lovecraftian stuff, there's speculation that it could be a person or a place or a realm or something, but it's deliberately vague. Okay, fine. It's still a cool word, though. These, uh, these creatures were created by author Frank Belknap Long. He was a prolific sci-fi and horror writer in the 20th century, early 20th century for most of his life. And um, he was a mentee of H.P. Lovecraft himself. They appeared in a short story actually called The Hounds of Tindalos, which was published in March of 1929 in an issue of Weird Tales. That's one of the old classic Lovecraftian magazines that, the, that stories like this would appear in. So a quick synopsis of the plot of that, um, because I think it really does put in perspective what these creatures are in not only in this lore, but in uh, Pathfinder as well. So it's the story of this man who discovers a drug that he believes that when he takes it will let him view the entirety of time and space. Uh, he asks his buddy to like watch him while he trips which is a very responsible thing to do. You need a trip sitter if you're uh, crossing time and space boundaries. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. Um, so he takes the drug, but while, he's, while his mind is journeying through time and space, he goes back too far. And doing so attracts the attention of these beasts, these hounds who, I'm, and I'm quoting here, inhabit the angles of the universe as opposed to the curves just unlike other life forms. So what, what he kind of says is that these beasts live in corners and angles, whereas within time and space, things like human beings live in the curves of time and space. I don't know that I quite understand that concept, but okay. He actually ends up staving off the hounds and his friend leaves after this guy sobers up. His friend thinks he's kind of full of shit and was just super high. But when his friend comes back, he finds his buddy's body a few days later after a localized earthquake, decapitated and bloodless, covered in a mysterious blue icor. And that's kind of the end of the story. So it's an earthquake. <laughs> yeah, the, an er, a localized earthquake happened, and then this guy's got by that earthquake, man. Yeah. So I think that's that's pretty standard for a lot of the Lovecraft stories that I've read about or actually have read where they start exploring a concept, it gets a little heady, and then it leaves you with a bunch of questions. These creatures also appeared in H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisperer in Darkness, which is a completely other thing. They don't have a central role, but it's cool to see them in H.P.L.'s uh, actual work. You know what has surprised me now that we're kind of digging into H.P. Lovecraft creatures? Go ahead. The amount of crossovers he did. I just never yes. really knew that, but like so many things in H.P. Lovecraft are crossover. It's, it's, it's shocking to me because... If you were to talk about somebody who's probably pretty knowledgeable about the subject and bring up the Hounds of Tindalos, they'd say, oh, yeah, that Lovecraftian thing. Well, 
It wasn't Lovecraft. It wasn't from Lovecraft. He just kind of borrowed his friend's concept. And apparently that was cool. I mean, remember, that was yeah. the case with Dimensional Shambler as Absolutely well. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, there was like a, a little cabal of these dudes who were all kind of writing the same stuff and sharing ideas and plot threads and creatures. And then oh, that would work really well for. Uh... And, and then it seems like almost there, there's almost this weird little pseudo revisionist history where it's just all attributed to Lovecraft now. Yeah, I think it's just the most popular kind of wins yeah. out. And I think his, his has just kind of. I won't say his work has necessarily stood the test of time, but it is still popular now. Mm -hmm. And so anything that is in one of his works is probably known as his work, even though he's done so many crossover things. Yeah, I think at this point it's just kind of easy because I don't know that I could really point to something that is Lovecraftian and theme and put it in one specific genre. It doesn't quite fit into horror, doesn't quite fit into sci-fi, doesn't quite fit into mystery. Um, but the word Lovecraftian sure does conjure a feeling. You know well, what you're getting yeah, into when you hear that. Yeah, things. So, yeah, very interesting how that all works out. Um, the creatures themselves across not only the Hounds of Tindalos short story, but The Whisper in Darkness, and a later story from the 70s that also was Lovecraftian in theme, but was written by somebody else. They, they appear in that as well. They're described a couple different ways, but typically they have a somewhat canine form with a big proboscis coming out of their mouth. Um, the later story, the one that comes out in the 70s, describes them as looking like a bat-like -like rag. Yeah, it's quite different. the descriptor. Yeah. And if you are going to be attacked by a hound of Tindalos, basically you'd look in the corner of your room that would be mysteriously smoking, and then this thing would start crawling out bit by bit, mm -hmm. which is a very cool way for something to come and attack you. Um, across all of the different stories where these creatures appear, they it, it's hypothesized that they have been thought to inhabit Earth before any other life form, and for some reason, hunger for mankind, although we don't really know why. So if a time traveler comes upon them, similar to uh, this dude that was tripping balls in the other story, um, they'll pursue through time and space to feed them. But interestingly enough, they pursue people but they don't go hunting, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, it was weird to me reading that to see that, okay, if I journeyed back in time, I could attract the attention of one of these beasts and then it would chase me to my to present day, but it just doesn't come to present day to eat a human. It's almost weird. like it's protecting the time stream. In a way, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how do they fit into Pathfinder though? They're similar to the the myth here, the Lovecraftian stuff, and really only appear on the material plane when summoned or somebody interferes with their domain, the dimension of time. And they look somewhat similar to how I described them earlier. They're just a little bit more feline and have a more alien face, but certainly a, a good depiction of kind of how I described them earlier. I, you certainly look at them and think, okay, that, that could be that, sure. Some more interesting stuff here. They can appear anywhere, anytime in reality if there are angles present, like how they pop out of corners and stuff. And though they are definitely very smart 
and very cunning. They show no evidence of understanding or communicating with mortals. Basically, all of the knowledge that people have of them um, comes from people who have survived an attack or witnessed an attack or something. Um, and they pursue time travelers, like we mentioned, but it's weirdly noted here, be it physical travel or simply divinatory glances forward or backward in time. Also, they may pursue creatures that teleport without regard to how this movement impacts subtle magical currents in the multiverse particularly. So that's a little weird to me and not, not in a bad way. Just like in the actual Lovecraftian myth, if you travel in time or go to the dimension of time or whatever in Pathfinder, you can attract the, the notice of the hounds, but also if you are a diviner or if you teleport a lot, you may attract their attention as well. And I think that gives um, your GMs out there, your homebrewers, a, a little fun opportunity to inject some hounds of Tindalos into your game if your party, you know, does a, a, a shit ton of scrying or teleports from town to town to town to town as people like to do in bigger scale, late, uh, late level adventures. Yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, minor spoilers for return of the rune Lords. Mm -hmm. We encountered these in return of the rune Lords because our time stream had been messed with mm -hmm. and it was assumed that we were the ones messing with the time. And so we were attacked by hounds of Tindalos. In this case, you have the book of abstruse geometries, which you guys found, mm -hmm. um, and I think I've likened it this way before. You you had a book in uh, in the beginning of the adventure called On Verified Madness, and that kind of described the eldritch horrors that are out there. But the Book of Abstruse Geometries is much rarer, okay. and it tells you how to summon them. Ooh. And so the Hounds of Tindalos are there, because somebody had been messing with the book before mm -hmm. you got there. So they'd been summoned to the area. Ooh. I was kind of wondering. I mean, it made sense, but I wasn't quite sure what they were doing there. Yeah, you guys will eventually figure out more about that book, I think, as you dig into it. But it's mm -hmm. very, uh, you know, you have you have a proficient user of the book with Manus, the, the spirit of Lyra's uncle who studied it for years. But outside of him, if somebody were to just errantly try and use it, it's gonna it's gonna fuck shit up. Well, I believe Matumbe is holding it right now, so we'll be fine. Yeah. But uh, why don't I why don't I get in a stat block on these bad boys? Let's do it, man. I want to hear all about this. Yeah, so Hansa Tindalos are CR7 creatures. Mm -hmm. You encountered two of them. Wasn't going to really be a super tough fight, though. Uh, they're medium outsiders. They have uh, really long dark vision, 120 feet, and um, some really good perception. But their AC is only 20. I might have beefed it up in the encounter a little bit. And they only have DR magic, DR 10 magic. So at mm -hmm. this level, you're all going to be hitting them. A, a fifth level party, maybe. It might be a yeah. different story. It would be pretty difficult. Um, they're immune to mind-affecting mind effects and poison. 
They what what's cool is they have constant air walk, so they can kind of move. They're really mobile, uh, and they have at will fog cloud invisibility and locate creature. Three times per day, they can use dimensional anchor, discern location, greater scrying, haste, and slow, which uh, is a really good spell list for something of this level. Run that by me again. Those were some pretty good ones. Dimensional anchor, discern location, greater scrying, haste, and slow. Okay. That kind of helps them stalk their prey. Yeah. And it also has those thematic like time spells in haste and slow. Dimensional anchor, you're chasing somebody who can lock a teleporter down. Absolutely. Exactly. They uh, they speak Aklo for whatever reason. I think that's uh, something that's kind of common among eldritch creatures in Pathfinder. Aklo's the language of the uh, aboliths, right? I think. I think. I think so, yeah. or something similar. It's it's like deep speak. Okay. Go ahead and continue. I'm going to Google that to make sure we don't sound like fools, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that is there, correct. There might actually I'll, be like an abol, like they speak abolith. In terms of feet, they have feats. They have blind fight, combat reflexes, and improved initiative, vital strike, and weapon finesse with their bites. Uh, but what's interesting is they have this angled entry. Uh, or supernatural ability. Hounds of Tindalos move through dimensions in ways other creatures can't comprehend. They may use greater teleport on themselves only once per round as a swift action and plane shift three times per day as a standard action. A Hound of Tindalos can use these powers anywhere, but its destination point must be adjacent to a fixed angle or corner in the physical environment, such as a wall, floor, or ceiling. Temporary angles created by cloth, flesh, or small items are not sufficient and it can't use these abilities to enter curved architecture or open outdoor environments. So if you had taken them into the, uh, into the main room in, in the building, they would have been trapped there Yes, because it's completely round. So it's funny that you bring this up. Um, this does not happen in return of the rune Lords, but in another adventure that we played, and I'm not going to say which one it is or whatever, because I know there's people out there probably playing this one. Uh, that exactly had happened before we showed up. Somebody had lured Hounds of Tindalos into a round room, and you have to get through that room to get to where you need to go. And that's how the fight starts, because yeah, they can't like leave. Spinning. They want to they fight you. Yeah. They also have an otherworldly mind, so you take 5d6 points of non-lethal damage and can potentially be confused if you try and read their mind. That kind of makes sense with like a creature that's beyond comprehension. And then they have a ripping gaze, which is 5d6 of slashing damage within 30 feet, uh, but it's such a low DC. It's a DC 18, so... Uh, I think you guys all succeeded on this when I tried to use it in combat uh, and you're immune to it for 24 hours. So uh, not really a tough fight for characters of your level, but they're very interesting creatures and they're very thematic for, uh, for how they happen to be there. Mm-hmm. If you were to take these creatures somewhere else, inject them into uh, a, a new... New situation. How would you throw them at a party differently than you saw them used uh, here? I think they'd be really fun in a maze. Oh, I think that would be I, really it, good. it would have been really cool if in the hedge maze I had thought to like 
have these like chasing you in the hedge maze or something. Mazes are all angles. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. you kind of have them like showing up at different spots and fucking with you. I, th- I obviously think as a CR7 creature, you know, they're even in a pack, they're really not going to be challenging for your level nine, level 10 characters. Mm-hmm. So I would potentially beef them up with like the advanced template or something to get the AC up. It's just really easy to hit an AC 20 at level nine. Yeah. Uh, so, but for, I mean, this could be, this could be a great, like, chase around encounter for characters of like a fifth level party or something uh, where this ripping gaze is actually doing a decent amount of damage because a DC 18 is a little harder to hit and because it can kind of like you have to you have to consider your environment when you're fighting one of these because it can show up in a corner so I think it would be really cool to like incorporate round um round areas and that kind of thing so that the party can learn about the creature and like defend against it. Yeah. Um, I remember from the first time we had encountered them in that unspecified encounter, um, that was off podcast. It was really fun to begin understanding how they worked because I don't believe we had the knowledge to identify them right away. So I remember um, I remember our GM moving them around on the map in very specific ways and in, in specific oh, yeah, places. Yeah, it's, it's... And, and you, you just don't think about it until you actually start seeing it actually play out. It was really cool. Yeah, you're like, why is it going to all the sides of the room or why is it like yeah, I, I could think of five better places for it to teleport why did it teleport there oh and I think that's a good limiter too on the swift action teleport mm-hmm. I mean swift action teleports really strong once per round but it's, it's a good limiter that it can't just like oh I'm getting into flank if you really wanted to fuck with a party put it in a 15 by 15 room or something put two of them in there and then they can flank anybody at any point just bouncing off the walls right uh, I think the air walk's really cool. That might give some lower level parties trouble, though, with yeah. this. So, uh, but uh, I guess the mitigator is at that point, it's just going to be gazing yeah. <laughs> and it's not really going to have a ranged option. But uh, like I, I slowed you guys all at the end of that combat. I think using that earlier on, if that hits a lot of folks, uh, that's really thematic for the creature i think more so than super damaging i think well i think what that what that helps you do too is if you have a party like us that is mainly melee focused we've got we've certainly have some spell casting ability and, and a little bit of range but mainly melee um you slow people right away go somewhere else they run across the room to get to you go somewhere else yep. you know you can just kind of keep ping-ponging back and forth with that gaze or whatever and be a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, I mean, the the limiting factor with the gaze is obviously that once you save against it, it doesn't hurt you again for 24 hours. But mm-hmm. um, but I think using them in like their at-will fog cloud or something is really good with the blind fight. You could, because then you obscure the corners of the room and stuff too. Yeah. So you can really make it tough on your party. Yeah, yeah. And the at-will fog cloud just with how they were described in Lovecraft, they they pour that smoke out of the corners so they they can be smoky boys. Yep. Well, what else do you got for them? 
that about do it? Yeah, that's pretty much their whole stat block, man. I mean, they got a bite two claws, bites 2d6 plus three, claws is 1d8 plus three, and they move 40 feet. <laughs> <laughs> very cool, very cool. All right, so let's get to the listener questions segment of the show. First one comes from Alex HP Lovesack. He's got a, a, a several tiered question, and this one's for you specifically, Griff. So what are your thoughts on sanity rules? Just straight out the box, what do you think of them? I think they were bad in Carrying Crown as written. Mm -hmm. That was the first iteration of them, and I think they're okay in uh, horror adventures. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that the the rules the in rules Carrying Crown preceded what we what are um, what's in horror adventures. Which Carrying Crown preceded yes. horror adventures in general. We're using the horror adventures rules. Okay. Uh, because the Carrying Crown rules, I think you'd all be insane at this point. They're just, they're too punishing. Mm -hmm. But. Is that something you saw people can complain about yep, on the forum? It was a huge was complaint. There... Most people were like, just don't use the sanity shit. Yeah. It was just like in book one, a lot of people were pissed off about the, like, the, there was like a reputation system with the town. Hmm. I think I remember us chatting about that before, where it was like, yeah, uh, the whole town would have hated you right away. And it's yeah, it's over. like the whole town chases you out of town. If they, It's like, fuck that. That's not. But um, it, it does feel a little weird to me. And, you know, I'm playing it by the book because this is a Lovecraftian thing. Uh, but it feels weird not to have used the sanity rules the whole time and then to, like, kind of tack them on here. And the book does that. Yeah. I'm not saying that's an incorrect thing to do, but it's it's a little difficult to rationalize, like legitimately going into a haunted prison and then like watching my friends get like slashed to pieces and then see people get stitched together in the next book. And then the walking amalgamation of Dr. Viv's uh, carnival right. corpses. And then now I see something that's a little creepy and I'm like, oh no, I'm terrified. Yeah, and I'm trying to use that as like a it's a consequence of these things being incomprehensible mm -hmm. uh, that it that it does this because your characters are characters that have experienced a ton of horrific things, legitimate trauma. And in the actual sanity rules, if you if you play them as written in horror adventures, you know the first time you see a zombie, you're supposed to you're supposed to roll. It's not a hard roll, and I don't think there's a like penalty. Uh, for success, you know, that, that it kind of gets to with the Lovecrafty and stuff where there's still a penalty for success. But um, but still, it's like the first time you see a mutilated body, you might have your players roll for sanity. Mm -hmm. uh, and it kind of that system scales to that low and it scales all the way up to like a great old one. Okay, and I, I've got a few questions of my own on, on the sanity system that I want to run by you just to kind of chat about it a little yeah, bit because it is sure. a big part of the book and I think it's going to have some really lasting consequences on our further adventures here in Ustalov. But let's continue with Alex's questions for now. So what are your opinions on sanity rules in Pathfinder versus other systems? Have you experienced this in other systems? You read about anything? Uh, Call of Cthulhu has a yep. sanity system as does Delta Green um, to some extent. And I believe there are other sanity... I mean, there's other sanity mechanics out there that I don't I haven't really experienced or ha like have heard played. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think like the, the Lovecraftian systems are the ones that actually 
uh, give a shit about it, yeah. really. But they're much better. <laughs> they're, but, but I think that's inherent in the system, right? Yeah. It's like in, in a Delta Green or a Call of Cthulhu, like your characters are meant to kind of go insane or die. Mm-hmm. They're up against something that's way stronger than them. The odds are not in your favor in those systems. And in Pathfinder, it's flipped. The odds are supposed to be in your favor. And I think the sanity system is punishing mm-hmm. in Pathfinder. Not so punishing that it's like lose your character punishing um, until it gets really bad. Yeah. But it's it's better executed in horror adventures. I still think that it's not the best. Uh, I talk about, talk about things that I like really enjoyed like i really liked the performance combat system and yeah. like, there, there's there's a lot of subsystems we've used that i'm like corruption really yeah corruptions like i'm really jazzed about them and i'm really jazzed about how we can kind of morph them and use them the sanity system is cool it's all punishing though and it's and i i don't generally like stuff that's a hundred percent one way mm-hmm. um but I felt like I would be doing kind of a disservice to us as a group if I didn't use it because we are kind of, we've kind of built ourselves as the podcast that likes to use all of these alternate rule yep. sets and that kind of thing. And, uh, and I wanted to give it a go. It, in my opinion, I, if I were to go back, I would probably either all or nothing it, I would use it the whole time or I wouldn't use it at all. All right. And I think that plays really well into his final questions here. So when or how do you think it's appropriate to use them? Now, it sounds like in horror adventures, they really there's there's the opportunity gifted to you to use them for basically anything, say mutilated corpse, a zombie. These are not uncommon things in most Pathfinder adventure paths. I think you need to set a scale with what your party has experienced. So... For instance, I might not make you roll on the aberrant Promethean because you've seen all of the horrors of like uh, flesh golems before, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you've seen some pretty disgusting altered shit. But it, it goes back to like maybe the first time you see something like that, I might make you make a sanity roll. And then beyond that, I don't really think a sanity roll is necessary. What now? When it's stuff like dark tapestry stuff, great old one stuff, eldritch horror stuff. I mm-hmm. think every time you see a new one of those, you should use the sanity rules if you're using them because they're supposed to be mind-breaking creatures. Yes, and it it reduces the weight of the creatures if you just breeze over it. Like if I say, okay, next time you see um, a Hound of Tindalos, forget it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a part of the system to, it's a part of the sanity system to be making people roll when they see stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Makes sense to me. I, I think we're using it appropriately. It's going to be exciting to see how it plays out. I think in a horror campaign, you want to use it the whole time. Yeah. I think in a, and and that's, you know, probably regrettably, we should have been using it the whole time. So it wasn't like a, 
shock when we started using it now. But if there's like just one particularly upsetting book in an adventure, I would use it there. Like, uh, like Hook Mountain Massacre comes to mind. Yes. Like that, that might be a place where you start using some of the sanity rules because some of the shit you see in there is really depraved. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, same with like, you could use it in Foxglove Manor. Yep. Yep. Stuff that's meant to be horror, I think, really, really works well with it. But uh, in a full horror campaign, I would just all or nothing it. Understandable. And I think a lot of people have heard us rolling for sanity damage. And we may have discussed a little bit about um, what what that actually means. Basically, we're trying to avoid getting what are called lesser and greater madnesses. There are several of both, Mm -hmm. and greater is obviously more detrimental to your character than a lesser. Uh, Before we move on, do you think you could give us, if not an example of one of both, just kind of what makes a a lesser madness or a greater madness? What's the kind of, what's the scale in how bad it is getting one i don't i don't know i don't even know if i'm phrasing this question correctly i I, I think i'm gonna i'm gonna do it without a direct example Mm -hmm. lesser madnesses are often situational penalties or penalties that are not to your core essence as a character or they're lower penalties there's something like a minus one or two yeah uh and they definitely affect role play but they affect role play more than they affect mechanics yes a greater madness is going to actually hamper the way your character plays. And it's going to be pervasive in everything that character does. And it may completely incapacitate certain characters, depending on what the madness they get is. There are some madnesses that, greater madnesses that like prevent you from casting spells in certain instances or prevent you from preparing spells entirely or, um, prevent you from going into certain situations and those are bad i mean they're they're things that like okay you're done being an adventurer until you go fix this so lesser madnesses allow you to keep playing greater madnesses you probably have to retire that character yeah it's uh whether you're looking at a a lesser or a greater and and i've read through the the lists of both it's gonna really challenge your players to RP in a different way. And that's actually one of the things that I'm most excited for to finish out this book with is to see if any of us pick up any madnesses. And if we do, how does that change the way that we play our characters? I've been playing Matumbe virtually the same way for almost three years now. I had a little short stint where I got to be evil with, uh, with the Lopper, but picking up a madness would force me to get out of my comfort zone and do something new and different. Um, similarly to anybody else here. I mean, uh, it would be, it would be an interesting challenge. Not to say that I want one because that's fucked up. I don't, but that's what I kind of like about them. Not that they're good because they're obviously very bad, but it's going to lead to good radio. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I will say is if you want to use the sanity system, you should probably, talk to your group about it uh, because not only is there like an agency kind of issue with it uh, especially with the greater madnesses which obviously my whole table is bought into uh, (laughs) me taking away agency for the sake of horror Um, but there's also a little bit of the just something that maybe rubs me the wrong way about the sanity system and maybe it's just the the 
madnesses in general is that a lot of them are like real world parallels and I it kind of puts a bad taste in my mouth to like put statistics to a real mental illness uh, yeah and I think I think touchy. your table I think your table has to be comfortable with that and like you kind of have to be upfront about it like I mean if somebody if somebody at our table like had a relative or had issues with like schizophrenia like mm-hmm. that's a that's a madness in here and like they put mechanics to it and they kind of like you're gamifying a disability exactly and I, I really I, I don't enjoy that aspect of it so I kind of like I have my group rolling on the table and I'm kind of like fudgy wudgy with it mm-hmm. because I I don't want one of your characters to like try and role play schizophrenia I kind of hate that yeah I, 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 I agree with you some of my least favorite humor is when people make fun of folks with um with with brain issues like you know like the the joke of like like an old person forgetting things like that's really sad and depressing and sucks like don't don't laugh at that right and i i feel like you could with the wrong people get there or you know be trying to role play or gamify something that may be greatly affecting somebody else at your table. Make sure you got that buy-in. And I'm, I I hope that all of us can treat this with respect, and I know we will. Right. Um, but it's just something you want to be careful about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, next question comes from Commodore at Phrasma Saves. That's me. Why is Matumbe not a follower of Gra... Okay, this is going to take me a second to get right. It's an unfamiliar name to me. Grahasta? Grahasta? given his bibliophile leanings. I don't even know who that is. So I didn't either. So I did a little bit of homework, <laughs> Griffin. Is that, is that like a really obscure demigod? Uh, kind of here, or at least obscure to me. So uh, Gruhasta is a male... V- Ooh, excuse me. Is a male Vujringad. So of the India analog... That makes paradigm. sense. I haven't really explored those deities in any of my characters. And they don't get a lot of lot of light here. They don't get a lot of focus. He's actually a mortal nephew of Arori, who, according to legend, ascended into divinity by authoring a book so perfectly profound that he merged with it and became a god. He merged with the book? Yes. <laughs> this guy... I guess we know ro- you're testing the stars now. <laughs> this guy wrote such a banger book that he... Be- came it um and i it seems like he has a little bit more relevance in tui i believe he has an entry in the one of the new gods books uh, like the gods and magic yes i don't quote me on that but i th- i saw a lot of a lot more tui related stuff well that was yep, like nope. your uh, your door goddess or whatever like I don't, Elsetta, yeah, yeah. I don't remember seeing her really at all in first edition but she's got a page in yep lost omens gods and magic page 62 if you want to read a little bit more about this guy so I mean to actually seriously answer your question he's not a follower of this deity frankly because I was not aware of it at the time and even still don't know that I would have picked him just because it's a there's not a whole lot of information out about this guy and is from a corner of Galarian that I, you know, it's me just not doing my due diligence. I don't know a whole lot. Well, about. Right. And the Phrasma worship yeah. is like an in, integral to Mitsumbe's character. Like if you 
you can't switch gods and have Matumbe right. as a character. Right. It'd be, it'd be a different character. 100%. So I think this having a a cleric or a holy man of um, Gruhasta would be really, really awesome. And I think you could do it in a cool, interesting way. Holy Grimoire, perfect archetype for it. Um, it just wasn't perfect for the character. And frankly, I just didn't know about it. I think... Um, I think this guy's really cool, and I'm looking to learn a little bit more about him now. Yeah, I mean, seriously, that should be a big consideration for any living grimoires out there. Is like that's like the yeah. perfect god for a living grimoire, just because it's like. Well, actually, I don't know. I don't really know what the tenets are because it's like you could be being a huge asshole by attacking people with the book. Hmm. Very good point. Um, much like be like sacrilege like you're using my number one absalom times bestseller to smack people in the face hmm. let's see his anathema is deny a sincere student education destroy knowledge disrespect the traditions of those around you willfully spread ignorance or wrong information i don't see anything in there that about, would say i couldn't whack somebody with weapon. the book um yeah, worked edicts, worked toward collective transcendence, expose and root out malicious lies, challenge oppression through education. There it is. Challenge oppression through education. Educate him with the flat side of the book. <laughs> We're, we got it. Get educated. We got it. All right. So I think that pretty much uh, answers that question. Next one's going to be a fun one. This one comes from Twisted Slurp Nigma. And this is actually one I might pull out for, again, when we have a, a bigger audience here to answer it. But question for everyone, what Marvel character would you most likely want to make into a character and how would you go about building them? Griff, do you have one right away or do you want me to start us off? Because I've yeah. got one. Well, I don't want to step on your toes. All right. So... I am currently working through rewatching all of the Marvel movies. I'm about halfway through Venom right now, and that is who I am picking. The way I want to make Venom probably isn't, doesn't marry perfectly with mechanically with um, how Venom works in the comics, but what I would do to at least thematically get me as close as where I want to go is make a Blood Rager. You know, Venom, you you have them, you turn them on, you turn them off, much like a rage. Yeah, you'd be like an aberrant blood rager or something, right? Yes, and so aberrant would be really good for this. I actually did a little bit more homework, and there is a black blood bloodline, which I don't know if you know anything about the black blood, but first of all, it looks like the symbiote. Yeah. And it's this chilling black cold liquid found deep in ore of the lowest layer of the Darklands. Um, it seeps into your your bloodstream and uh, has stuff to do with undeath and everything. But if you are a black-blooded, blood-lined blood rager, you get a couple cool things. You can do cold damage, which I don't really know how that works, but sure, fine. You do get the abnormal reach. Similar okay, cool, to yeah. the Aberrant Bloodline, which is very thematic for Venom as he like kind of twists and grows off of uh, the body of who he has and get resistances and all sorts of cool stuff. I just think the that you could take this Bloodline and the Black Blood substance and very easily thematically change it to be much like a Venom symbiote. And Blood Rager kind of works perfect for how the character plays on the comics and in the uh, in the movie. So that was my spit. I know. What you got? 
I think a Marvel character that actually, for me, most mirrors like an actual Pathfinder character in terms of like without using really magic in You're terms just of power. Say vigilante. I, well, no, I was, <laughs> was going to say um, Hawkeye. I think Hawkeye okay. would be really cool to make using the Eldritch Archer Magus, mm-hmm. which basically like allows you to fire spells through your bow, which works well with like his multi-effective arrows. Yeah. Uh, and, and kind of, I would go into crafting a little bit so that I could not only fire spells through my arrows, but also craft air, like different types of arrows, like your flaming arrow, your whatever, an arrow for every situation. And Pathfinder, I think, has like specific quivers that can help you yep. in times like of that. Like a fishing quiver. Which, which is very similar kind of to what Hawkeye has in the Avengers movies, where you can see his like quiver, quiver spinning like, spins around. around yeah. what he needs. Yes. Yeah. And it's really easy to build an archer, you know. There, there's, yeah. a, there's a pretty much a feat tree to get you there, and they're really strong in Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. So I just think that would be the easiest way to build Clint. I was also thinking, and I, I want to spit the, spitball this with you because yes. uh, I don't, I haven't like thought about how to build him yet, and so I think you and me together might be able to build him. I want to build Ghost Rider. Oh. First of all, we're not changing the casting of Nick Cage. No, it's it's definitely Nick Cage. Okay. So I think there is a Construct Rider archetype for uh, either Alchemist or Cavalier, (laughs) which I think, you know, you can make your Construct a motorcycle, right? Yes. This actually might be... You could could set him in uh, Numeria. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. He's got the construct shit he needs. Cool. He's got the construct shit he needs. Um, maybe a follower of uh, Zonkathon to get the, the chain. spike chain. Spike chains, yeah. I know. I don't think this is where we want to go with it, but um, it it's reminiscent a little of when I leveled up Sawyer a little bit uh, to meet him in episode 100 plus of the HLP. One of his rage powers was that he could um, call, he could give his, all of his natural attacks the flaming property, which I don't think we're going to be using here for this build, but just kind of made me think of Ghost Rider, how th- that's how he works. He flames on his skull. So the Construct Rider is an alchemist. Okay. He could make the motorcycle spit flames. Come on. So the Construct Rider upgrades his mounts, like your mount gets an internal reservoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can fill it with one dose of a potion or extract the Construct Rider created as a move action that doesn't provoke an attack of opportunity. The Construct Mount can apply the potion or extract to itself. Refilling the reservoir is a complicated process. It requires a DC-20 craft alchemy check, yada yada. Then you get Vaporizing Reservoir, which means that the uh, you add a compartment near the mouth, uh, which stores a bomb. Loading the bomb requires the same process as loading an extract. It can unleash the bomb as a breath weapon in a 15-foot cone or a 30-foot line as the standard action. Yeah, because the construct mount lacks the throw-anything ability, Alchemist Intelligence bonus doesn't apply to the damage. So you're taking a tiny hit on the damage, but you get a you turn that that bomb into a cone or a line that's still pretty good um then you've got the widened vaporizer so in that cone becomes 30 feet or a 60 foot line yeah so that's wow. that's pretty dope i think we would take 
we would take at least enough levels in in uh, Construct Rider to get mm-hmm. that vaporizing, and that gets you the motorcycle. Yep. How do we make him Ghost Rider though? Okay. So, oh boy, I know I know we're crossing genres here, but if this were two E, you could have him be a human with the I think it's the Efreet versatile heritage because mm-hmm. that's no longer because I want him to be a human because he is human but he also has to have some sort of tie to flame and shit so instead of being a human or an Efreet in Pathfinder 1E in 2E he could kind of be both I know that's not where we want to go with this if we're doing this 1E but I think that's an interesting thought I'm trying to tie in Zonkathon I don't know. Uh, I yeah, I, I want to do like the the flame stuff. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I fucking got it. Lay it on me. An Efri kinetic knight kineticist with the kinetic whip. Well, there it is. A whip of flame. Well, there it is. And he's like, you know, flaming on. It's ridiculous. I think it's great. That's very. I good. think it's great. You know what? Somebody out there build it. Build yeah, I mean, and show do, I, do I think the build would work well? Not really. No. But like, I'm try- I was trying to think of something that actually worked with intelligence. And I think if you make this build, you're going to have the multiple attribute dependency of. Well, you don't need too much intelligence because your intelligence doesn't get used with the mount flame breath thing anyway. Yeah, you're not going to use that. I don't. I don't see you using that all that often. So you don't, probably don't need a lot of bombs. Right, and so you're really doing that for the construct mount. Mm-hmm. You get ride and stuff with that archetype, and so you really need dex and constitution, which a kineticist already has. Yep. And and so you you do like the six level alchemist, and then the rest of the way kineticist, I guess. That's great. That's all you need. Weird. I wouldn't have really thought of him as a kineticist, but I think that works. Yeah, if you go, if it, you, instead of doing your blasts or whatever, you got the whip. I think that makes sense. Well, I think you could use blasts too. You know, yeah. he's, he's he shoots fire. Well, in Spirit of Vengeance, he certainly pisses fire. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Beautiful. Absolutely. All right. Final question to take us home tonight is going to get a little heady. This comes from Ten Lawn Gnomes. Eric, would you rather have instantaneous interstellar or interplanar travel? I think I can make a case for both. Ooh, I, I assume we're talking about in Pathfinder here because we don't know of any planes. See, I wasn't sure. I took it as in real life. Because in real life, I would probably go Interstellar, right? Okay, I agree with you to a certain extent. And I think my answer in real life would also be Interstellar. But think about it. All the religions in the world have some sort of afterlife. And you can't... That's not a physical location, so it must be another plane. So if you inherited interplanar travel, you'd be like, okay, I want to teleport to heaven. Oh, nothing happened. All right, Christianity's bullshit. All right, I want to teleport to else. <laughs> you're just going to knock them out. Just figure it out. Well, not- yeah, but then you might end up with a fucking power that does nothing. <laughs> but then you know. But I guess then you know. I, I guess. That's Good luck I'm- proving that to anybody. Right, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. If you wanted to either... Prove or disprove religion, maybe you go interplanar travel. Well, I think interplanar, like, if you believe in... I, this is still tied to the afterlife, but, like, 
ghosts and stuff. Like oh, that would kinda, yeah, there you go. That would kind of, I feel like you'd be like a Danny Phantom-esque character then, where you could kind of like go to the ghost zone. Or, or like with religion, you could, yeah, you could like take me to the astral plane. Oh, nothing happened. All right, ghosts are bullshit. Yeah. Now you know. Okay. <laughs> Proven. Yeah, so if you really want to be like one of those like atheist disprover people on YouTube, uh, you could do that. By the same token, like right now, you can't fucking do anything with interstellar travel either. What the fuck are you going to do with it? Go die? Um, I think I've heard, right, I think I've heard (laughs) that there may be worlds similar to Earth out there that are very, very far away. So you're just like, like... chancing it right that's so that's i mean right that's a huge problem like unless you have some sort of spacesuit or something you could go there but then if you kind of peel it back a little further i mean this we're not living in like doctor who or star trek or something like if i teleport to another world that even has like the same ecosystem as earth i'm immediately gonna pick up some sort of like fungal or bacterial or viral infection that I have no resistance to, I'm going to bring that back to Earth and kill everybody by accident. That's what's going to happen. COVID-2 interstellar travel boogaloo. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about that. There's a lot of implications in real life. In yeah. in, I think, I, I think I'd go in, in interstellar, though, then if, if I had to pick one. In Pathfinder, I think I'd go interplanar. Yeah, in Pathfinder, interplanar, I think it's the call. In Starfinder, I might go interstellar. So that you don't have to, you never have to fucking bother with starship combat ever again. Right. But what do we consider interstellar? Is that, could I just use that as like teleporting around Earth then? That would be pretty cool. I, I don't know. Do you have, mean, like, in, do you have a, Pathfinder, do you have a minimum distance? Right? In, in Pathfinder, yeah. there's teleport. Do you have a minimum so. distance? I think it's trying to go beyond the bounds of what like a normal teleport would do. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can, you can hit another galaxy up. I'd do that. Or It'd be that. cool if, like, in a in a setting where you know you have knowledge of other worlds. Yeah, definitely take mm-hmm. the interstellar. That's awesome. Yeah. But like, in a setting like Pathfinder, where you have knowledge of the other planes, can you imagine, like, a thousand years in the future, humanity sets down on another planet that's just like Earth, millions of light years away, and they just find a bunch of discarded hams cans that I left. <laughs> I left. <laughs> Hams. <laughs> there, there is intelligent life out here. Beer refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> just straight up trolling future NASA. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the for the notification that Hams got a new source of uh, aluminum for its cans, and then I'll uh, then I'll be I'll be checking the logs to see what planet you teleported <laughs> to for new aluminum. <laughs> oh boy, I can do it. All right, yeah, I think in Interstellar here, Interplanar and Pathfinder. Check out the Boneyard, see what up. I guess. I mean, just fucking go to like Elite or like Elysium or something. Have a chill time. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Boy, that'd be nice now. Yeah. You know that. I'm heading to Nirvana, guys. Deuces. Later. <laughs> this place sucks. <laughs> All right, I think that about summarizes it for today. So, once again, always great chilling with you, Griff, and we'll have to do this again next time. Probably in like two weeks, we'll do it again. We'll have to. Yeah, (laughs) we actually will have to. (laughs) Yeah, so, all right. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in. You've got a whole lot of really cool Bestow Curse stuff coming up. Is there anything you want to 
plug or shout out or wrap the episode up with Griff, we are closing it down. Nope, just finish your drinks. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. Later.